It's all about Elcross, and even kids are joining the search for water on the moon this week on Planetary Radio. Hi everyone, welcome to Public Radio's travel show that takes you to the final frontier. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society. It's slightly past 4.30 in the morning, Friday, October 9, at the NASA Ames Research Center in California. The huge Elcross Centaur rocket stage has just smacked into Cabeus Crater at the moon's south pole. Another spacecraft is following just four minutes behind. Here is its last minute of life, the most critical moments in the mission. Stand by for shepherding spacecraft impact. The very last seconds of the uh, shepherding spacecraft trajectory as it approaches the lunar surface. We are seeing very small craters within the we, crater. We confirm a thermal signature of the crater. Our mid-air cameras, over. Copy science. We just All received light shepherding s- spacecraft impact. Stations report LOS. The uh, ground stations at Goldstone just reported Last a Last track is 11.35.35.054 seconds. The shepherding spacecraft has hit the surface of the moon, and this marks the end of the LCROSS uh, flight mission. That was the end for the LCROSS, or Lunar Crater Observing Satellite Spacecraft, but only the beginning of what they would reveal to all of us back here on Earth. Two hours later, reporters take their seats in front of the LCROSS scientists and engineers. Like hundreds of thousands of space fans around the world, these reporters wonder if something has gone terribly wrong. After all, models had predicted a huge plume of debris from the Centaur impact, but none had been seen. Did this mean no water had been detected in the permanently shadowed portion of Cabeus Crater? Something had been seen at the impact point, but what? A reporter from the Reuters news agency pressed Elcross principal investigator Anthony Colaprete. If you can see a, um, what did you say, a sulfur flash, uh, does that, why? Sodium. Sodium flash. Um, can't you see if there's a hydrogen oxygen flash as well? Yes, we can. Great. Was there? I have not looked yet. Oh, come on. I have not. <laughs> I spent the last hour making those images I showed you. Uh, we have the spectra, we have the flash data, and uh, you can bet that's the first place I'm going after this is to, uh, to go back and look at the spectra itself. We have not honestly looked at the spectra themselves, except to do a quality check on the radiance figures I, I showed. It's just that I think, aside from the ejecta cloud, that's the thing we're all wondering. Can you just call your buddies who are probably looking at the data right now and let us know? I can, but I think they're all in the audience, actually, right now. So uh, uh, we just got to sit back and be be careful. We don't want to... Life is full of surprises. We want to be careful, not make a false negative or a false positive claim. Uh, I'm excited we saw variations in the spectra because that means we saw something, and it was uh, not just blackness. And so the information's there. We just need to get to it. Do you think you'll know later this afternoon, then, whether there's water uh, or ice? I very may. I probably will, but I'm not going to tell you. (laughs) (laughs) Until we have a consensus amongst team members, HST data is just coming down now. They're looking at OH emissions. Uh, LAMP on LROs looking, multiple orbits. You know, we're going to take our time and get a, a, a you know, build up a, a case for water um, in, in the ejecta if it's there, or a case against it if it's not there. And then understand, if, if we're seeing variations, 
What do these variations mean? We've got to understand that uh, before we say anything, honestly. I'm thrilled that not only us saw variations. That's a very good sign. And the spectra. The spectra is where the science is at. It's where the uh, information is contained. So uh, that's, that was our most uh, uh, high, highest priority data sets. So I'm glad we got that. Uh, we are going to work on this feverishly, as you might expect, and we'll, we're going to keep everyone impressed as, as it goes forward. Was Colaprete simply being a good scientist? Sure, but you couldn't blame the reporters for pushing him to be a bit less cagey. I knew someone else who had been following the mission very closely. My colleague Emily Lakdawalla, originator of the Planetary Society blog, had also been up all night. I got her on a Skype connection just minutes after the end of the post-impact press conference. Emily, it's uh, as we heard from uh, the mission team, it's uh, awfully early to be saying anything about this, much as uh, we in the media might want to uh, hear immediate and well-reasoned uh, scientific results. Uh, what's your impression at this point? Well, I think that the, the great news that we got from the press briefing this morning was that the spectrometers on the LCROSS Shepard spacecraft not only recorded data, but they definitely recorded an impression of the impact flash. So buried in that impact flash data should be the information they're looking for about whether or not there was water in the material on the moon that the Centaur upper stage of the rocket crashed into. So they should have the data that they need, which is absolutely great news, but they're not going to be able to tell us much about that data right away. I don't blame the reporters at uh, Ames for kind of pushing uh, the uh, principal investigator there, Tony, to, you know, reveal what he may suspect about this spectroscopic data. He did seem to be a little bit cagey, don't you think? <laughs> I think so. He basically said, I think the press asked, um, did you see any water in their in your data, or would you see any water in the next two hours? Should you be able to figure that out? And Colipri basically said that if I saw it, I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> Which wasn't really a very good way of phrasing the response. He went on to say that he wanted to wait to get consensus from the rest of the scientific team on what they saw, which is, you know, a good answer. And you do want to wait until you've had um, confirmation from other instruments from other sources and make sure the team is all on the same page. But I, I don't think it helped the way he phrased it to the press. I was out in the desert with over a hundred kids and parents and teachers. And uh, really, we were looking for what I think everybody was looking for, which would have been that nice deep impact style plume. Yeah, everybody was looking for a flash, and clearly the scientists' models indicated that they predicted that there should be a flash um, or, and a plume that would be visible um, even in 10 or 12-inch telescopes. And there wasn't a plume even visible in the 200-inch Palomar telescope. So I think that was a big surprise to everybody. Um, and unfortunately, I think it'll be a negative surprise to the members of the general public who were expecting to see a deep impact style plume. But you know, it's interesting you bring up deep impact because that plume was much brighter and dustier than they predicted, and it lasted a lot longer than they predicted, which is kind of the, the other end of the spectrum. So I think that these two simulated you know, experimental craters in space just go to show how little we really understand impact cratering and how important it is to do experiments like this. And they did talk a little bit about that during the press conference, but the, the general mood, and, and I think this was maybe a little frustrating to some of the reporters, the general mood was extremely positive, and I think a lot of that is because this optimism about the spectroscopic data. Well, clearly, the scientists got the data that they wanted, so they have every reason to be happy. Unfortunately, it just didn't produce the public splash that, that would have produced the nice images for newspapers and broadcast TV.
So what is your impression of where we go from here? Uh, days, weeks, months, they, they talked about uh, maybe uh, big announcements, <laughs> one would hope, at the AGU conference in December. Well, I think um, in the very short term, what we have to look forward to is all the data coming down from orbiters. As of this morning's press briefing, there was no um, data from Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter or Hubble or ODIN or ICONOS or GOI or any of the other big orbiting assets that were observing the impact. So hopefully we'll see some interesting news from those over the next days. And in the next weeks to months, we should see um, scientific results beginning to trickle out from this experiment. A long night, Emily. I'm sure you are looking to get some rest, and so we'll let you go and uh, talk to you again soon. All right. Talk to you soon, Matt. That was Emily Lakdawalla, the Planetary Society's Science and Technology Coordinator, speaking to me less than three hours after the impact of the two Elcross spacecraft on the moon. The very latest news on the mission can be found in her blog at planetary.org, including images of the impacts caught by the Diviner instrument on the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter. I'll tell you where I was during the Lunar Smackdown in the second half of our LCROSS Impact show. First, though, we'll check in with Bill Nye, the science and planetary guy. Bill reminds us that some of the most exciting science happens when theory turns out not to match reality. Hey, hey, Bill Nye, the planetary guy here, vice president of the Planetary Society. I'll start this week with a story from one of our founders, Bruce Murray, along with Carl Sagan and Lou Friedman, founded the Planetary Society. But in 1961, Dr. Murray said, you know, it's very reasonable that there's ice on the south pole of the moon where the craters are especially deep and the sunlight grazing angle is especially shallow, that the chemical bond between the water and the rock would be such that ice would persist there, presumably for millions of years. And I remember him in a meeting making a disparaging comment about a colleague. He said, that guy's no geologist. He's a geochemist. And I remember thinking, wow, Bruce, that's, that's quite a distinction. Well, apparently the geologists were proven not especially right and the geochemists not especially on target either because we smashed a Centaur rocket booster into the moon and a few moments later we flew through what we hoped would be this big dust cloud, this plume of dust that would carry lunar, moon-bearing, rocky water. And we would then know that there's water on the moon for sure. Well, didn't work that way. The plume wasn't especially visible. The instruments flew through it, and there wasn't really that compelling evidence of water yet. Now, as the data are analyzed over the next few weeks or months, perhaps they'll find a lot of water. But I just want to remind everybody, it's possible that the moon really is desolate and really is dry. And we really don't need to go back there with humans and plan to build a big moon base and drink moon water. It's possible that there's a little bit of water, but not nearly as much as many had hoped. So Dr. Murray may or may not prove correct, but in the meantime, it's another cool example. We had a model, a mathematical model. We predicted what the chemistry of the moon would be like, or the geochemistry. And it's a little bit different than we expected. Not a spectacular show you could see with just a 30 centimeter or one foot across telescope, but we're going to learn something in the next few months. So let's moon on. I got to fly Bill Nye the Planetary Guy.
How did a bunch of school kids in the California desert become important contributors to the Elcross mission? I'll tell you when Planetary Radio continues in a minute. I'm Sally Ride. After becoming the first American woman in space, I dedicated myself to supporting space exploration and the education and inspiration of our youth. That's why I formed Sally Ride Science, and that's why I support the Planetary Society. The Society works with space agencies around the world and gets people directly involved with real space missions. It takes a lot to create exciting projects like the first solar sail, informative publications like an award-winning magazine, and many other outreach efforts like this radio show. Help make space exploration and inspiration happen. Here's how you can join us. You can learn more about the Planetary Society at our website, planetary.org radio, or by calling 1-800-9-WORLDS. Planetary Radio listeners who aren't yet members can join and receive a Planetary Radio t-shirt. Members receive the internationally acclaimed Planetary Report magazine. That's planetary.org radio. The Planetary Society, exploring new worlds. Welcome back to Planetary Radio. I'm Matt Kaplan. Our special coverage of the Lunar Crater Observing Satellite mission now takes us to Southern California's high desert, about 350 miles south-southeast of the NASA Ames Center and El Cross Mission Control. Friday, September 9th, it was cold as I pulled up to the Lewis Center for Educational Research. Not surprising, since it was 3.30 in the morning, an excited crowd of lunar lunatics was already gathering for live coverage of the double impact. Inside the nearby technology building, middle and high school kids sat at impressive consoles, looking up at an array of giant flat screens and projected images. They would soon be joined by even younger children. It was a big night for the center and especially for its Goldstone Apple Valley Radio Telescope, or Gavert project. The first person I talked to was Rick Piercy, a former kindergarten teacher who is the founder, president, and CEO of the Lewis Center. Set the scene for us here, this facility, and, and maybe an idea of what these young people who've been following this mission all along, what they'll be doing this evening leading up to impact, which is, as we speak, only about 45 minutes away. Yeah, it's coming on close. Um, these uh, third, fourth, and fifth graders... Uh, are, have been in moon camp all week, and so they're coming in to observe the, the actual impact here in Mission Control. Mission Control here at our school is about a 3,000-square-foot facility in a lot of ways models NASA's Mission Control. And actually, as you see, Elcross's Mission Control comes up. I think ours looks a whole lot better. But, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, but uh, this, this area, um, because... Because the other antennas over at Goldstone did not have enough time, Northrop Grumman and NASA Ames came to us and asked if, if we would do the tracking. And so uh, two hours out of, out of every 70 hours was tracked by NASA out at Goldstone on other antennas. Uh, the rest of the time, 68 hours of each pass, was tracked by students around the world through this mission control center. Uh, so as Northrop Grumman said, we're going back to the moon and this time we're taking the kids with us. I love that line. That's wonderful. But this is uh, far from your your first experience with a, with a NASA mission, you and the young people that uh, you give such a wonderful opportunity to here. Well, we, we do. We run uh, several radio telescopes now for NASA and uh, here at our school the, the students are in fact we have 71 third, fourth, and fifth graders here that have spent the night getting ready for this and um, spent three, four days this week in moon camp. 
so it's uh, it's been fun. But we have we have schools that uh, we've trained teachers in 37 states, 14 countries, and three U.S. territories. And now, um, in fact, Puerto Rico's coming on today, as well as uh, some of the other schools. So uh, we we allow children to run these big radio telescopes and and explore space. And we've done a lot of projects with NASA. Rick Piercy, president and CEO of the Lewis Center for Educational Research in Apple Valley, California. Shortly after our conversation, the younger kids began filing into the control room. We all waited and watched the NASA TV feed from the Elcross spacecraft and mission control at Ames up north. Here's the last minute or so of the mission once again, but this time from the viewpoint of the young people. Listen carefully, and you'll hear them applaud not just the impact of the Shepardine spacecraft, but mention by NASA of their own contribution. sending any signals. So did you hear him say that the tracking station at Goldstone confirms? Yeah. That's a tracking station at Goldstone. So boys and girls, Every one of you here were part of that tracking station at Goldstone that NASA TV just said confirmed. I wish there was time to let you hear from many of the students who participated in the Elcross mission with their giant radio telescope. I'll let Alicia Scarberry speak for them. I got to go to the launch in Florida, and today we got to see Elcross hit, and it was amazing. <laughs> now, you just graduated. Yes, I just graduated from the Lewis Center. So you can look back on this now. What kind of experience was it? I mean, this just seems like maybe the coolest school in the world. It was life-changing. I never thought that I could be a part of a NASA mission. It was amazing. It was wonderful. Gavir is a great program. It's and you see the little kids, they're just so inspired to be scientists, it's amazing. So, I'm did, did you get to work with the younger kids? Yes, I did. Um, every day I got to be a Gaver intern, and we got to help with the little kids, and they just love it. They go crazy for it. They think it's just the greatest thing in the world. <laughs> so you were there essentially at the beginning, you were there at the launch. Yeah. How did it feel to be here for the big finish? It was very exciting because you got to see the NASA scientists put so much heart into it, and you get to see now how how it just is it's accomplished and it's so great. And like I can see that they're going to be so happy because when it first launched, they were crying happy, and now I bet you they're just so happy just to see it hit and just all the work. It's great. You look pretty happy too. I am very happy. <laughs> <laughs> I am. I'm excited, and it's three in the morning, so you know this is really happy. Uh, it's actually almost oh, wait, five, five, five five in the morning. Okay, it was three in the morning. <laughs> Yes, but yes, I'm very excited for this. It's great. <laughs> you said it's life-changing, or life-changing for you. What do you mean? Because I never even knew anything about this. You always think that NASA, there's like no way you can be a part of it. But it's really easy to be a part of. You just got to get involved. It's, it's great. <laughs> you did have an especially good opportunity here, but but it, it, it you're right. I mean, there yeah. are ways for young people and yeah. people of every age. Yeah, to get and now Gavert, you can just get involved. Any teacher can go online and look up Gavert, and they can be a part of it. Yeah. It's great. 
How do you think this may change your own future, your personal future, uh, where you may end up? I hope to um, continue with NASA. That would be great. I really do. That is very cool. Yeah. All right. Well, you don't look like you're sleepy at all. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> great welcome. talking to you. Great talking to you, too. Thank you. <laughs> Alicia Scarberry, recent graduate from the Lewis Center for Educational Research in California's high desert. Can you guess who has our last report on the L-Cross mission? Finishing off our special coverage of uh, L-Cross, the uh, impact of the L-Cross uh, spacecraft, both of them this week, we visit with Bruce Betts, the director of projects for the Planetary Society. He had his own venue to uh, watch the impact from. Where the heck are you? And welcome. I don't really know where I am. <laughs> I am somewhere east of Palomar. I'm in Warner Springs Ranch. That's where I am. Sounds like a lovely place. Uh, unfortunately, I saw about an hour and a half of it last night, mostly with my eyes closed, an hour and a half this morning, mostly with my eyes closed. <laughs> and, so I'm sure it is, but it seems a little fuzzy right now. And what were you doing in between? In between, I was up at uh, Palomar uh, at the 200-inch telescope in the control room doing commentary with the BBC Sky at Night show while astronomers from... Caltech were using their uh, unbelievably spiffy adaptive optics on the unbelievably spiffy 60-year-old telescope uh, and just creating amazing images of the moon. Now, when you were up there as an astronomer, the adaptive optics were not in place yet? That is correct. Adaptive optics was just something people... The term it appeared, but no one was doing it particularly. It was just a, a theory started up elsewhere and then now they've uh, they've used it in recent years to make the uh, do really high quality work again at the 200 inch despite the fact that there are other bigger telescopes now well you know how much i love that place uh so listen with that once upon a time biggest telescope in the world any sign of the elusive plume no there is a significant lack of plumage <laughs> no, not just a lack of plumage. Yeah. There was uh, there was no visible plumage. They were uh, looking at uh, near infrared, 2.1 microns. Just a, a gorgeous image. It's online uh, in Emily's blog and on the Palomar website. Uh, nothing, zilch, nada. Any spectroscopic uh, data from there? No, they were just doing imaging. And and perhaps, well, maybe at the end of the show, I'll, I'll share with you as I'm. I'm so want to uh, quote classic poetry. I, I'll, I'll do that at the end of the show. So, something to look forward to. All right, tell us about the night sky other than uh, no plumage on the moon. You can see the, the moon if you look up in the night sky. Uh, <laughs> we saw beautiful stuff outside, I should say. They also had brought up some amateur astronomers out there to attempt to see the plume. Uh, obviously did not, but had a good time. And it got me out in the pre-dawn. In the pre-dawn, it's just hopping. Got to have that really low to the eastern horizon view, but we did. The, there's Venus and below it, Saturn and Mercury. Mercury's going away pretty darn quickly, but Saturn's going to keep getting higher. Venus will hang out for a little bit uh, as the really bright object. In the evening sky, you can check out Jupiter high in the sky, brightest star-like object in the evening. So you can really see the night sky up here. It turns out they should put an observatory up here. Yeah, I'll, I'll uh, send a note. Thanks. On to, uh, what are we going on to? Uh, random sleepy facts. No. Random space 
fact. Wake up, wake up, wake up. Come on, wake up. <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure you uh you heard some of these, but this is I'm just gonna spew facts about El Cross at you. Two thousand kilogram upper stage, seven hundred kilogram shepherding spacecraft, both slammed into the moon, two and a half kilometers per second, an angle of uh, about seventy five degrees, much, much higher than the previous impacts of dying spacecraft like Lunar Prospector and Smart One. The resulting impact crater, which they offhand said they thought was similar to what they thought it would be, from the Centaur, 28 meters in diameter by 5 meters deep, and the baby spacecraft, 18 meters in diameter, 3.5 meters deep. A plethora of random space facts about our chosen topic for the day. It's true. It's true. And now, let us go on to the trivia contest. And we asked you a topic about none other than El Cross. And I'm sure you've heard the answer by now, but for those who entered the contest, what was the crater targeted by the El Cross spacecraft? And this, I'm not sure what you got, Matt, but I, I think we would, due to the timing, have to take either the previous choice or the revised NASA choice uh, that happened uh, within the last two weeks. You are so right, oh, Stargazer 1. <laughs> it, it just happens that you asked your question almost exactly as the mission team was uh, moving to a different crater. Uh, I sense the disturbance in the force. <laughs> so we would have accepted either Cabeus or Cabeus A, or the one that it actually did impact in, Cabeus, uh, the granddaddy of the Cabeus family, I suppose. And it was Stephen Coulter, first-time winner. And by the way, we had more entries, I think, than we have ever gotten before for this one. I don't know why, but there you go. Great. Stephen Coulter of Woodville, South Australia, who said, indeed, in fact, he, he got in right after the uh, change and did uh, provide uh, Cabeus. Uh, by the way, i got to tell you about a couple of others after I tell you that uh, Stephen is going to get the second set of those uh, Blu-ray discs, the first season of the universe uh, that we were uh, giving away, that uh, show on uh, the History Channel that you are a part of. This one I, I kind of liked because, you know, if Elcross can be a kind of tortured acronym, why not Cabeus? And so we did get an acronym for Cabeus from our friend Tom Hendricks, a regular listener. Here it is. Can a big explosion unearth some H2O? Cabeus H2O. And of course, you know that uh, Cabeus was named after Niccolo Cabello, and we had several listeners let us know about this, a 17th century astronomer, physicist, philosopher. According to uh, Philippe in France, I think I got that name right, uh, he says that, uh, interestingly, Cabello was a, a bit of a hydraulic engineer. He was involved in, in moving a river. And so uh, it turns out that, uh, you know, moving water around is uh, they're very appropriate for this crater. How tremendously appropriate. <laughs> if there is water. All right. And one final uh, trivia in the land of, El well, related to Elcross. Before the two Elcross spacecraft objects hit the moon, what was the previous spacecraft to hit the moon? And, because that might be too easy, what was the first spacecraft to hit the moon? I want both of them. First spacecraft to hit the moon and the one right before Elcross. Centaur does not count. Okay, go to planetary.org slash radio, find out how to enter. And you have, can you guess, until Monday, October 19th at 2 p.m. Pacific Time. Monday the 19th at 2 p.m. Pacific Time to get us that answer, and you will win a Planetary Radio t-shirt and an Oceanside Photo and Telescope Rewards card.
Okay, we're done. All right, everybody, go out there, look up the night sky, and think about giant telescopes and people with British accents. Thank you, and oh, please, good night. <laughs> now, didn't you have something special for us? Oh, you're so good that you remembered. Yes, it's so frequent, as listener, regular listeners know, that I quote classic poetry. Well, or not. T.S. Eliot once said, The spacecraft died, not with a bang, but with a whimper. Thank you. Good night. <laughs> He's Bruce Betts. Did I say this already? The director of projects for the Planetary Society. I need more sleep. You need more sleep. Try not to do it on the freeway, which is where I tried to take a nap on the way back from the desert. Yeah, that's bad. And we'll hear from him again next week on What's Up. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California. Keep looking up. <laughs> <laughs>